0: And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Production Bunker, it's Derek Duvall!
1: Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello! Hey, everybody. Hi. Thank you so much. Please sit. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. (laughs) We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. This episode is brought to you by the fine folks at BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service, and it's 100% online. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash Derek DeVall Show. That's better, H-E-L-P.com slash Derek DeVall Show so before we jump into this episode i want to say a huge thank you to my last guest Anola bedard an absolutely lovely lady and i wish nothing but the best luck for her career if you have not heard our in-depth interview i strongly advise you to check it out at the conclusion of this episode so welcome to episode 192 and we have a fantastic episode lined up for you today we have on the show andrew biggio now andy is a former u.s marine turned police officer and historian His incredible project, The Rifle, has seen the recording and preservation of hundreds of World War II veteran stories. His tireless humanitarian work in the veteran community has also made him a legend. After the success of his first book, The Rifle, he has now released the much-anticipated follow-up, The Rifle Two: Back to the Battlefield. Andy is a fantastic guest and someone I was not only honored to have on the show, but also someone whose journey I have followed with great interest and passion. So let's get him out here. Duval Nation, please welcome to the show calling in today from Boston, Massachusetts, Andrew Biggio. Andy, good evening. Welcome to the Derek Duval Show. How is the weather out by you today?
2: It's beautiful, but we're supposed to be getting a hurricane uh, by Saturday, I'm hearing.
1: All right. So with the pandemic now coming to an end, how was it for you to navigate the COVID-19 world?
2: It was very difficult. Not only, you know, was I working in law enforcement and it was a high political climate and having to deal with protests and riots and uh, people's attitudes, you know, then working with World War II veterans, I had to be super cautious with, you know, passing them any, you know, sicknesses and, and some of them died from COVID, some of them died from, you know, I think vaccine complications. So it just was, it was a rough, rough couple of years for sure.
1: Okay. So every journey has a beginning. Where were you born and what was it like to grow up there?
2: I was born here in Boston, Mass, and I had a great upbringing. But I I was taught about sacrifice pretty much at an early age. Both my grandfathers each had a brother killed in World War II. And so I was named after one of them, Andrew Biggio. So I grew up in a really patriotic neighborhood. We honored our veterans on St. Patrick's Day, Veterans Day, Memorial Day. And I was involved in sports, popular in high school. And then in 2006, after I graduated high school, I went into the Marine Corps. Hmm.
1: So was military service something you had, you know, ingrained in your heart? And you had your heart set on from an early age?
2: Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Okay.
1: So as a veteran, I love asking this next question. Why did you choose your branch of service over the others?
2: I think the uniform, the Marines that- <laughs> uniform, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it was just... Something about the Marine Corps uniform and them being the first to fight and just the name, just something is what really dragged me into it.
1: Okay. How hard was your basic training? What would you do at it?
2: I did it at Paris Island. And as an 18-year-old kid who never left home before, I thought it was pretty difficult. Uh, The drill instructors were tough. They were all combat veterans. And it was my first time from home and a lot of having to learn things on my own as a man. And and, um, it was tough, and I was one of the greatest things I've ever overcame.
1: The other one that's out in San Diego. And I remember being out in, when I was stationed out in San Diego, you've alright by the airport and you see them as you're taking off. You see them out there just being drilled on the on the flight deck out there and what have you on just doing push-ups on the deck and watching us yeah. just watching them take off and what have you wishing they were on the plane and what have you. And you always feel bad for them and what have you. So yeah, I get it. So
2: Yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah. So how many deployments did you do and where did you do the map?
2: I did two deployments deployed to Iraq in 2008 and then Afghanistan, all of 2011.
1: Okay. Now you have a bachelor's degree for sociology from the Suffolk university, correct? Yep. Why sociology?
2: At that time, my university at Suffolk, um, they're they're You could only major in, if you wanted to major in anything with criminology or policing, stuff like that had to be sociology uh, with a concentration in criminal justice. So that's what I did. And then, I went and got my master's for Homeland Security at Northeastern.
1: Hmm. Why'd you get out of the military?
2: You know, I think I got everything I wanted I was a sergeant in E5. You know, I got multiple deployments. I was in the infantry. I, I wanted to be, my goal was to always just never stay in the military as a career, but do my time, get out and become a police officer. And that's kind of the path I stuck on. Hmm.
1: Now, you said, you just said you are a police officer. What inspired you to continue to serve?
2: I think the police were just heroes of mine growing up in the neighborhood. I grew up in enough the neighborhood and remember them, you know, getting rid of all the scumbags, um, drug dealers and drug addicts and things like that, that I felt like threatened my childhood and kids around me. So I've always viewed them as heroes and I always thought uh, there needs to be someone to get rid of evil. So.
1: Okay. All right. So I want to talk to you about what may be one of the most important projects, any civilian has ever put into motion in the form of a journey you call the rifle. For my listeners, can you please give them an explanation as to what the rifle is and why you felt the need to set out on this absolutely incredible crusade?
2: Sure. The rifle is just that. It's a M1 Grand Service rifle, which was the number one issued weapon during World War II. And when I got back from Afghanistan, I started to question, you know, why I survived and what happened to that Andrew Biggio i mentioned uh, the man i was named after and how he got killed in italy in 1945 so i was pretty i guess i had some sort of survivors guilt on why i survived and he didn't and started to read the letters he wrote home that my grandmother had saved in a shoebox and in this letter he writes home he writes home to his mother about how much he enjoyed the m1 grand and Dear Mom, this is going to be the newest rifle out there. It's going to be better than what the Germans have or the Japanese have. And he's writing from basic training to his mother in Boston, Massachusetts. And its I thought it was just so interesting that he was just infatuated with this weapon enough to get it right home and tell his mother about it, who, who was probably like, what, you know, reading such different types of letters than what her son probably used to write to him in school, you know. So I had to go out and buy what what and feel what he felt and hold what he held this m1 grand once i took it home it took on a life of its own
1: Are those pretty easy to track down
2: no no not anymore um they're very expensive if you want to get a world war ii era one serial numbers on there it's pretty difficult to do um and if you do it's expensive so what i did was you know when i took the rifle back to my family members No one expressed interest like I did. I said, you know, this is the rifle Uncle Andy had when he died. And nobody understood it. So I brought it to my neighbor who fought in World War II. When I put it in his hands, I knew I had something magical seeing his reaction um, at age 92. It's like he was uh, 19 again.
1: As of this recording, there are roughly 167,000 World War II veterans left in the United States. And that is a very loose estimate as these, you know, veterans are in very advanced stages of age. How are you tracking these veterans down?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. Right now, when I started, I was looking, I was reading after action reports uh, from World War II from specific divisions or units or regiments, and pulling names out of guys who were labeled as wounded or missing or injured and things like that, and or who received medals. And then I would Google them, see, find their obituaries, or see them in the white pages, or the yellow pages, and then call them, cold call them, and tell them, "This is what I'm doing. Here's my project." I'm a veteran. Can I meet with you? Now my following got pretty decent on social media that people now message me and say, Hey, my neighbor fought world war II. My grandfather was in world war II. my father. So that's how I'm, how I continue to do the mission now. Okay.
1: We were very extremely honored to have two world war II veterans on the show and the stories they told defy belief. What is a story that has stuck with you above others?
2: Well, that's why, you know, when I would put this rifle into their hands, I always wanted to remember the meeting. So I asked each veteran to sign their name on the rifle. And then I think I must have been about 19 signatures in when I realized I was hearing stories that some people never heard before. And one was this gentleman by the name of Clarence Cormier, and he served in the 106th Infantry Division during World War II. And... Clarence had been captured in the Battle of the Bulge, and his division actually had almost 7,000 men captured there. They put them, the Germans put them on a train car, bound, destined for Germany. These men were squished in there like bugs, shoulder to shoulder, chest to chest, butt to butt. And as the train started to head for Germany, two American P-47 planes saw this German train and started strafing it over and over again. Little did they know they were killing hundreds of their own men, their own guys. And when the Americans busted out of the train car, finally, they laid it on the ground with their bodies and they formed the letters P-O-W. So when the planes were making another round, they saw that these guys were prisoners of war and they bailed up. And Clarence told me that story, crying his eyes out, crying his eyes out at age 96. And I said, This guy's carried this for so long that it was such an amazing story. That's what inspired me to write the book, The Rifle.
1: And like you said, you've compiled these stories into that best selling book. You know, it's an incredible book. What has the reaction to the book been like?
2: Oh, well, The Rifle one, I've sold almost 40,000 copies. That, that means audio, Kindle, paperback, hardcover. It's gotten five-star reviews on Amazon. It's amazing. And then it inspired me to write Rifle Volume 2, where I took just more of the stories. And you can see the M1 rifle there covered in signatures. Right. So I, I had to keep going and make a second volume.
1: Okay, Duval Nation, we are going to go ahead and take a small break right here. But we will be right back with the conclusion of this interview with Andrew Biggio. May I suggest you take this time to refresh that drink and take some super long deep breaths. You know, that's right. Cluzo style. Please give your attention to a few friends of my show and we will be right back.
0: Sometimes people have a story to tell. It could be a story of triumph or a story of sorrow. However, it's their story. It's important to keep their story authentic in their own words and delivered in a delicate way. That's where Unfiltered Discussions podcast comes in. I'm Brian Howard. I talk with my guests about tough subjects and pivotal moments. I'd love for you to hear their stories. Subscribe to Unfiltered Discussions on your favorite podcast platform. Let's ensure their stories are heard. Hello Duval Nation, Derek DeVall here. Mental health is not only a top priority in my life, but it should be in yours too. As a combat military veteran, I have seen what untreated mental health looks like, which is why I've been using a therapist for well over a decade. Seeing a trusted therapist has helped me reconcile life events and other important things I've been witness to since returning home from the service and has changed my life for the better in many ways, which is why going forward I am pleased to announce that BetterHelp will be sponsoring The Derek DeVall Show. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Derek DeVall Show. That's BetterHelp.com slash Derek DeVall Show. We're sand in the gates
2: This is Chad from The Shame. you are listening
0: to The Derek Duval Show. You can find our stuff at theshameshop.com or listen to it on almost all our streaming services. We'll see you down the pub. Cheers.
2: This is Benjamin Sledge, author of Where Cowards Go to Die. In my award-winning memoir, you'll discover the raw humanity, intricate complexity, and brutal barbarity of those who served in the Iraq and Afghan wars, and the psychological toll it took on modern veterans. You can purchase Where Cowards Go to Die on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or anywhere major books are sold. Look for me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Benjamin C. Sledge.
0: Hey, this is Patrick Baker and you are listening to The Derek Duvall Show. Check out my new single available on all major streaming platforms and visit my site at patrickbakermusic.com. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome
1: back to episode 192 of The Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our interview with former U.S. Marine, police officer, and historian, Andrew Biggio. And you are launching that book. It's a sequel of sorts. You know, and this time, it's many different kinds of stories. You know, can you talk some more about that? Because I did read that on your Instagram page. This is a very different kind of book.
2: Rifle 2, you know, Rifle 1, I, I stuck with, you know, representing stories of the greatest generation and heroes that overcame such awful things. But then in Rifle 2, I, I decided to take maybe um, six or seven veterans who had a real rough go after World War II. Um, some became alcoholics, other became criminals. Um, some took uh, attempted suicide. Others uh, were liars about their service just to get ahead in life. And um, I took the time to show everyone that um, sometimes the greatest generation wasn't perfect as well, especially veterans who are now living in a hard time themselves after their own service in modern history.
1: Hmm. You had a former 2nd SS Panzer Division soldier write the foreword, incredibly controversial. But based on what I saw in your video, I totally understand why you did it. Can you explain why you did it?
2: Yeah, so Rifle 2 itself is about is a lot of controversial stories, as I said, about the men who uh, were not the greatest generation at first. And then, I, I you know, after the fall of Afghanistan, I've been questioning my own service. I am very proud of my service. I am very proud to be an Iraq and Afghanistan veteran. And um, I'm still going to raise millions of dollars and thousands of dollars for my brothers and sisters who were wounded in those wars. But you know, I often think on how that, why the, you know, the fact that the Taliban are back in charge and all the work we did and how we rushed the recruiting station after nine eleven, and how we uh, invaded Iraq and did all these stuff. And I said, you know what, like looking back at it, I was, I wanted to do what my country wanted me to do. I wanted to follow orders and I could see how easily these German veterans were probably, um, you know, coerced into this stuff too. So, Why not, 80 years later, hear their side of things as they've been living in the dark shadows? And most importantly, the American veterans forgive the German veterans. So if they forgive them, the guys who killed their friends, captured them, and who they went to war with, and they feel very regretful of the nasty things they did to each other, why not hear a German veteran talk about um, why they did what they did? And and it's been a unanimous vote bring American veterans to Europe. They want to meet the German veterans. So I gave this guy uh, a voice, in it, and it's a voice of forgiveness and a voice of uh, pride.
1: Hmm. What's it like when the when the uh, American veterans meet the German veterans? What, what, what kind of a meeting is that like?
2: Oh, it is an eye to contact to eye contact, undivided attention meeting. I mean, it's not like just meeting someone for lunch or a business deal. I mean, these guys are like it's it's coming out of their hearts, uh, from their hearts to their eyeballs that they grasp each other's hand. They don't even let go. Mm. It's unbelievable. That's
1: mm. Wow, that's, that's powerful. That's very powerful. Mm. Uh, you put this up on social media, but for those who don't follow you, I'm going to read this. Uh, Through your tireless charity work, you've put up two monuments, raised over $1.5 million for injured Iraq and Afghanistan veterans, placed six memorial plaques, returned 40 World War II veterans to Europe at no cost to them, modified homes, purchase vehicles paid off debt for many veterans. First off, that's incredible. Second, do you sleep? And third, <laughs> and third, do you do most of this through your, you know, the Boston's wounded veteran run which you are founder of or do you liaise with like, you know, other organizations?
2: No, I do it through myself pretty much, through the I use the nonprofit number to the Boston's wounded veteran run and as you know I sleep because I was 10 minutes late for the show. So, <laughs> uh yeah.
1: That's incredible. Tell me about the Boston's Wounded Veteran run.
2: Yeah, 13 years ago, actually 14 years ago now, I met a young 82nd airborne soldier who had got back from Iraq and he needed a bicranial replacement surgery. Uh, He got hit with an IED that replaced his skull with plastic. And the family just was not, it was just taking as slow as snails to get, uh, housing modifications and specific grants for this veteran in the early 2000s. I mean, the VA was really behind. So I asked the parents if I could do a motorcycle charity run for their son, who was Vincent Mannion Brodor was his name. And about 300 of us got together on our Harley Davidsons and sport bikes. And we did a charity ride. We raised like 30 grand for him. And the next year I picked a different veteran. The next year I picked different veterans. And 14 years later, I want to say we've helped, oh man, 60 or 70 Veterans and given out, uh, like I said, uh, probably combined 1.5 million distributed to all those veterans.
1: That's amazing, man! You Thank you have you a big you have a big heart. That's that's absolutely absolutely amazing. Thank you. Uh, what do you plan to do with the M1 rifle when you finish this project?
2: I want it to be placed in a museum and on display forever. Uh, that museum is yet to be decided because I need to tread carefully on which museum is going to actually display it or which is going to throw it into uh, storage. Because that's just not, I'm not going to let that happen. It, there's nothing like this piece of equipment anywhere in the world, an M1 Grand with 320 names on it.
1: All right. So you touched on it very briefly. Um, but I have asked every veteran who's come on my show this next question. And if it's okay, I would like to ask it to you. And that is, you know, as an Afghanistan veteran, what were your emotions when you saw the fall of Afghanistan?
2: <sighs> embarrassing. Uh you know, because just like that on the news, we we, we we literally became Vietnam veterans overnight looking at that, what was going on. Uh, it was embarrassing. It was humiliating. It was a shameful. Um, I think often of those 13 service members who were just pushed into the meat grinder and slaughtered for because we screwed up the exit of getting out of there. I think of the generals who didn't have the balls to uh resign after that. I think of... Uh, It was a complete catastrophe. And I think everyone, I don't care what political affiliation you are. I think that's enough to absolutely change (laughs) whoever the hell's in the White House in the next election. I don't care if it's Democrat or Republican. I think it was an absolute disaster. 20 years after one of the worst terrorist attacks we've ever had in human history for it to happen like that. And I just... It, it looks like it's been a failure for a few years, clearly. When I was in Afghanistan in 2011, you couldn't find one person to even admit they they were Taliban. And now all of a sudden you have miles and miles of them and vehicles pouring into Kabul. Where did these people come from? Uh, why didn't our three-letter agencies like the CIA and all these other uh, groups know that this was going to happen? I heard that the Afghan army and the Afghan police hadn't been paid for like eight months before the fall of Kabul. So, you know... If this was the case, then we should have killed bin Laden and been out of there, you know?
1: Yeah. That, well said. I uh, 100% agree. All right. Pierre de Coubertin said the most important thing in life is not the triumph but the struggle. You get a chance to talk to your youngest self. What would you say to him?
2: Being, I think I've been hard on myself. and very critical of myself over the years when it comes to policing, being a Marine, being an author, being a historian. I think one thing I'd get through to, to the younger me is that making mistakes is part of the learning process and it only makes you stronger. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger and just reiterate that. I feel like I had a lot of rude awakenings in life because that stuff was not prepared for me. So. All right.
1: So apart from the release of the rifle two, what's next for you?
2: The 80th anniversary of Normandy, I think is going to be my last trip bringing world war II veterans to Europe through their age and time. And I'm going to be moving on from world war II to probably other wars to write about other veterans. To raise awareness for, so I have a trip to Belgium coming up December for the 79th anniversary of the Battle of Bulge, which I'll be returning a few veterans and also Normandy in June. Okay.
1: As we enter the final phase of the interview, I always like to ask one fun question. Andy, what do you like to do for fun and to relax? Do you you relax? I think that's probably a better question.
2: Yeah. You know, it's funny. It's both my occupations of doing veterans advocacy and, and being a cop are both passion and work to me. But I do love riding motorcycles. I love working out. I love traveling. So,
1: How many miles do you think you've got now out of the out of this project? Ooh, man,
2: I don't know. I'd have to sit down and think about it. I mean, this this project went worldwide. Mm. You're coast to coast, below, you know, continent to continent.
0: That's crazy.
1: Yeah, yeah you definitely racked up the miles. There's no question about it. I've, like I said, I followed your adventures for quite a while, and you have been all over the world. There's no question about it
2: thank so. you my friend yeah
1: all right so what would be the best way for my listeners to follow your adventures online
2: sure visit the rifle on instagram or facebook the rifle and you won't be disappointed
1: that's the question there i had percent endorse that all right so andy i end my interviews with my favorite question and the question is this if the entire planet was listening to this broadcast what would be the one thing you would like to say to the people of earth
2: You know, I guess my I'll stay in my lane and just say um, respect those who uh, helped end the greatest war of all time while we still have them, because in a few years they're going to be gone. And just like the World War One veterans who kind of slipped away from us without realizing, um, let's absorb these men and women like a sponge before the next two or three years. All
1: right. The Rifle 2 Back to the Battlefield is releasing on September 19th, 2023 on Amazon, Barnes Noble, or wherever you buy your books online. Andy, this is you have created something that will stand the test of time on behalf of all historians. We all owe you a debt we can never repay. So thank you and thanks for coming on the show, my friend. Thank you, sir. And just like that, Deval Nation, we come to the end of episode 192. I want to thank Andy for taking the time out of his incredibly busy schedule to come on the show. I honestly was super grateful for the incredible chance to speak to him about this project that I truly believe in, and I want to wish him nothing but the greatest success for his future endeavors. Okay, tune again next time as we showcase another extraordinary person. I have a really good one coming up in a few days, so be sure to keep checking your favorite podcast streaming channel for that episode to drop. Also, I think it's fair to ask you, the listener, have you enjoyed this episode? I truly hope you have, so please go and hit that subscribe button to keep up to date for when new episodes drop. Also, if you're feeling generous, drop us a review. We love reading what our listeners have to say about us, good or bad. We are still enjoying our partnership with the amazing tea Public. The Derek Duvall Show has a great little store on there. And we have everything with our logo on it, including magnets, stickers, and mugs. Plus, we have some really fun T-shirts on there that Mrs. Duvall and I added ourselves. So please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com. Go to the banner on the left that says Merch. Click that, and you'll be taken to our store on tea Public. And once again, I want to thank them for being such great partners with the show. On behalf of myself and the entire team here at The Dark of All Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, I want to echo what Andy said. Let's try to appreciate the last few World War II veterans we have left. We just lost the star of Episode 59, Bill Parker, on September 11th at the age of 98. I attended his funeral, and it was a hero's send-off. That is how every World War II funeral should be, a hero's send-off, as this is what the greatest generation were. Heroes. Noda God bless and see you next time. Planet Earth
0: This has been a recording of the Derek Duval show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, Derekduvalshow.com for links to merchandise and to explore past episodes. Please find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Derek Duval Show.